Craig, why do you think a B-theory, tenseless theory of time, is incompatible with the Incarnation? I know you think events like Christ's crucifixion are not really done or over with on a B-theory understanding of time. But my thinking is, why must God be bound to the same way we perceive time and so as to relate to the world in that same way? Can God relate to the world via some X-theory of time or B-theory tenseless time perhaps? While we as finite beings still perceive the world under an A-theory or a tensed view of time? Bill, we've talked a lot about A and B theory of time. Uh, yes. In past now, for podcast. those who aren't familiar with the terminology, let's just make it clear. According to the A theory of time, uh, temporal becoming is real. Things really come into being and pass away. The past and the future do not exist, um, but are uh, merely potentialities. Whereas on the B theory, uh, past, present, and future are all equally real, and temporal becoming is just an illusion of human consciousness. And what I claim is that the tenseless theory of time is incompatible not with Christ's incarnation, but really with his crucifixion and resurrection. Because on the B theory of time, uh, Christ's crucifixion is still just as real as it ever was. Uh, Christ is there on the cross in A.D. 33. And his resurrection is just the resurrection of a later uh, stage of the four-dimensional space-time entity that is Christ. So it really evacuates, I think, the victory of the resurrection, uh, and it means that the evil of the crucifixion is like a permanent stain mm. in space-time that is wow. never really expunged or done away with. Now, he says, maybe you can have some other theory of time, some X-theory of time. Fine, if, he, if he's got that, let's hear it, enunciate it. But the point remains, I think, that the B-theory or tenseless theory of time does seem to have these consequences, which I think are theologically unacceptable. Hello, Dr. Craig. The following are two time-related questions that I've had on my mind recently. One, is the nature of time necessarily immutable, or could the nature of time change in some fundamental way at the return of Christ? And then number two, uh, if you're interested in possibly sharing, did your 13 years of studying God's relation to time influence your personal and or professional time management <laughs> practices? Well, in response to the first question, the nature of anything is immutable. If something changes in its nature, then it undergoes an essential change and so ceases to exist. So his first question is, could the time that we live in and experience be replaced by a different sort of time in the new heavens and the new earth after the return of Christ. And I do think that's certainly possible. We may have no idea of what time would be like in the new heavens and the new earth, but I see no reason at all to think that it, it couldn't be different in some uh, way. Now, as for the second very practical question, I have to say, no, my study of divine eternity and time uh, didn't do anything to influence my 
time management practices other than demand that I be extremely efficient in my study and writing so as to get through this monumental research project. I think that the philosophical term for that time management system, Bill, is Jan. (laughs) At least to a big extent, and we, we all know that. Clarence in the United States, he says, thank you, Dr. Craig. Thank you for your hard work to bless and equip the church. I frequent your podcast often and have enjoyed listening to your work over the years. My question is concerning the second premise in the Kalam cosmological argument, the premise, the universe began to exist. In defense of this premise, you have argued greatly. I have one objection to your defense. You have said that it is impossible for the universe to consist of an infinite number of past events, because if it did, we would never be able to arrive at the present moment. However, isn't it possible that we never do arrive at the present moment? It seems to me like the present moment is infinitely fleeting. The moment it becomes the present, it simultaneously becomes the past as the precipice of time pierces on. Is it possible that the present moment is not a metric of dividing infinity? Is it possible that the future extends into the infinite potential, and because of that infinite potential, we never arrive at a static state or a present moment? Thank you. I hope to learn more from you about the nature of time and infinity. I was laughing there, Bill, because that's such a good question, and we have discussed it. Yeah, yeah, and I would commend to Clarence my book, Time and Eternity, if he hopes to learn more about the nature of time and infinity. Now, I certainly think that we do not arrive at a static state, uh, so that's a red herring. And I would agree that the present moment is not a metric concept. Uh, It doesn't have a measure. But we can easily solve that by being more specific by talking about the present minute or the present year or the present session of Congress And certainly those things do become present. Uh, The present minute has obviously arrived because I am existing right now at this present minute and experiencing it. And so I think that you cannot evade the argument by saying that the present never arrives. Okay. This is a similar question. Hello, Dr. Craig. I'm a young Christian with an interest in apologetics. Thank you for all your work. You mentioned that traversing an infinity and ending at a point, presumably the current day, is absurd. However, many Thomists object. They respond that if one selects any event in the past, the succession of events between that event and the present is finite. Even if it were on an infinite number line, the succession between any particular past point and the present is still finite. Hence, the idea of traveling an infinite seems removed along with the absurdity. Is there a good answer to this? Thank you, and God bless Joe in the United States. Well, yes, Joe, there is a great answer to it, and I have uh, answered this objection a number of times in my published work. This objection commits the so-called fallacy of composition. The fallacy of composition is saying that because every particular part of something has a property, therefore the entire thing has that property. 
And that's fallacious. For example, every particular part of an elephant might be light in weight, but it doesn't follow that the whole elephant is light in weight. So reasoning by composition is a fallacy, and this objection commits that fallacy. What it says is that because every part of the past is traversable, therefore the entire past is traversable. And that doesn't follow. Just because every finite part of the past to the present is traversable doesn't mean that the whole infinite past is traversable. And an easy way to see this is by his uh, example of the number line. We can think of the series of past events as being numbered by the negative numbers, with zero being the present moment. So zero at the present, negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, negative five, and so on to infinity. Now, the distance from every negative number to zero is a finite distance. There is no number in the negative number series that is infinitely distant from zero. Each number in the negative number series is only a finite distance from zero. But that doesn't imply that therefore the whole distance is finite. On the contrary, it's infinite. So the fact that you can traverse every finite segment of the past does not imply that therefore the whole infinite past is traversable. Yeah. Bill, is he correct that this is something that Thomist would adhere to? Well, I didn't want to say anything about that, but I've never heard any Thomist uh, make this ah. objection. I've, I've seen this objection from J.L. Mackey and certain other secular thinkers. Um, I think maybe John Howard Sobel might have offered this objection, but I've never heard a Thomist say this. Okay. It's, it's clearly now, fallacious. Dear Dr. Craig, first I want to thank you for your valuable and enlightening work. Like many, I am struggling on my way to theism, and often I am left with questions that for some reason aren't talked about much. I've listed some of these here, and it would be very valuable to hear your response to them. Uh, none of these are my views. They contain different angles of the same issue, or so I've grouped them together. Number one, on God's infinity, this is the one that we're going to look at, Bill. If something exists apart from God, would that not limit God since he is infinite and would encompass everything? Let me say immediately that I've written an article on this subject that Tom should read. It's called Pantheists in Spite of Themselves? Question mark. Pollenberg, Clayton, and Schultz on Divine Infinity. And he will find that this article addresses directly his question. And this is to be found on the reasonablefaith.org website under scholarly articles and then the subsection Christian Doctrine. And again, it's called Pantheists in Spite of Themselves. And the fallacy here is thinking that if something is infinite, there can't be something outside it. That if something is infinite, that then it includes everything. And that's simply a non sequitur. Take, for example, the set of odd numbers. The set of odd numbers is infinite. But there's also the set of even numbers, which is also infinite. 
and neither one is included in the other. Um, in addition to those sets of infinite quantities, there are other things like Kevin Harris mm -hmm. and Bill Craig that aren't included in those collections. So the idea that God is infinite in no way implies that he is all-inclusive. There can be a finite world which is not God and is distinct from God, even though God is infinite. He continues, if God resides in a domain beyond the finite, outside of time, this is a limit and he cannot be infinite. I so, don't see that as a limit to God's infinity, that he should exist timelessly. Uh, again, he's, he's thinking that the infinite can't have limits, and, and that's clearly wrong. Think again of the uh, series of natural numbers. It has a limit. It begins with zero. It has one end. This, uh, by contrast, the series of negative numbers has a limit. It has an end with negative one. So it's simply incorrect to think that something that is infinite is limitless in the sense that it's all-inclusive. Okay. So that answers his next question. So how can God be infinite when he doesn't include everything, also the finite? If the finite is part of God, something it must be if he is infinite, then God, too, is finite. And I would not say that the finite is part of God. In fact, that's the burden of this article that I just referred to, to suggest that Pollenberg, Schultz, and Clayton do seem to commit themselves to a kind of pantheism whereby the finite would be included in God because they think God must include everything and be all-inclusive. But in answer to his question, how can God be infinite if he doesn't include everything, he can be infinite in the sense that he is eternal in his being, that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, he knows everything, that he is omnipresent, he's everywhere present. Um, none of those uh, properties exclude the existence of finite reality, which is non-divine. He said, when God created the finite, he must logically have become finite because of the existence of this. Because there are finite beings, and infinite beings seems contradictory. Yes, and that is not correct, as the illustrations I've given show. The, the equivocation here that's going on on the part of these thinkers is equating the word infinite with all-inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that is a false equivalent. It's, it's odd that these sorts of arguments should have developed at the same time that Cantor's work on transfinite arithmetic and infinite set theory would make the concept of the infinite in mathematics very clear and understandable and would show quite the contrary, that the infinite can have limits, that you can have an infinite collection that is not all-inclusive, that there's no contradiction between the infinite and the finite. In fact, in transfinite arithmetic, you can do addition with infinite quantities and finite numbers. For example, Aleph null is the lowest transfinite cardinal number. It is the number of elements in the set of natural numbers. And you can ask questions like, what is Aleph null plus 1? What is Aleph null plus 2? What is Aleph null plus 3? And those are perfectly intelligible arithmetical operations in which you add the finite to the infinite. The, the infinite is not all-inclusive. So what is he getting at here, Bill? He says, 
However, if the finite is a part of God and he really is infinite, then the finite is also infinite. Yeah, I liked his earlier expression that if the finite is part of God, then God is is finite. Yeah, he, he it's hard to know what he's saying here. God's infinite being couldn't interact with anything else. Yeah. Because there would be nothing that he is not. Yes, yeah, see that's the yeah. idea here is this e- this equation of everything. infinitude yeah. with being everything there is or being all-inclusive, and that is a false equation. And he just sums it up by saying, if there is an interaction between the infinite God and our finite world, how can God then be infinite? And he can be infinite in possessing these superlative properties that I just described. Absolute moral perfection, omnipotence, omniscience, eternality, uh, omnipresence, aseity, metaphysical necessity. These are the attributes that go to make up the infinity of God's being. Okay. Hope that that helps, Tom. He says he's, he's on his way to theism. Yes, we wish him well. Thank you.